Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. In this episode, guest host Neeraj Rajasekhar talks to Harvard professor Natasha Waraku about her book, The Diversity Bargain, and other dilemmas of race, admissions, and meritocracy at elite universities. The book centers on conversations with white students and students of color at Harvard, Brown, and Oxford around their understandings of diversity and diversity programs. Through these interviews, Waraku illustrates how elite students make sense of their positions at elite universities, the merit involved, and the role privilege plays. Hi, this is Neeraj here with Professor Riku from Harvard. Uh, thanks for joining us. Really happy to be here. Sweet. So you're the author of The Diversity Bargain, <clears throat> and uh, I guess we can start with our questions. <clears throat> As an idea, diversity means a lot of different things in a lot of different situations. For our listeners, could you describe the main research question behind this book? And furthermore, why should we study diversity? Yeah, so um, the what I kind of set out to answer in this book is to try to understand how students think, not just about diversity, but um, more specifically about meritocracy um, and, you know, what's a fair system of selection um, and also race and how they think about race and the, wor- the, the role that race plays in the social world. And I really see these two kind of concepts as intertwined. Um, and as we think about, you know, what a fair system looks like, um, do we have a fair system, you know, given what we know about inequality in American society? Um, and what does race have to do with that? Like, you know, what about racial equity and inequality and how does that shape our understanding of fairness? And so, you know, affirmative action on college campuses is a really kind of, um, clear, um, policy that gets at the intersection of these two things. And these two have really always been intertwined when we think about, um, you know, quotas in the past for uh, Jewish students or Asian Americans um, in college admissions and, um, you know, using criteria of admission and, you know, definitions of meritocracy that exclude Jewish students, for example, um, the whole kind of system of measurement of merit um, emerged around the same time as as, um, eugenics was developing. And so these have really always been intertwined. And so I really wanted to get at how do students today think about these issues and how does that shape um, the ways um, they think about particular social policies, about their race relations on campus. So I think, you know, this concept of diversity is very broad and means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, And I, you know, specifically, and race is just one piece of that story. Um, And so, uh, so so that's how I kind of think about um, uh, race, meritocracy, diversity. These are all kind of part of a bigger story. Sweet. Okay. So in the introduction of the book, you describe how your experiences growing up in the U.S. and then living in the United Kingdom made you think about race and that kind of drove some of the research behind the book itself. But for our listeners, you know, what is it about race in the U.S. and race in the U.K. that makes that an important distinction? And are there things we can learn as Americans from the U.K. situation? 
Yeah, you know, we tend to think about the United States as a much more kind of race oriented society, the way that and, and Britain is a much more class oriented society. And, you know, by that, I mean that um, people think about um, issues in terms of race, in terms of race in the United States, we think a lot about racial inequality, um, racial division, where our identities are t often tied to our race, our race. Um, whereas in Britain, class plays a much more significant social role in terms of, again, how people identify themselves, how they see social groups in society. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind that we have, um, you know, serious class inequality in the United States. Um, and I think that's become come to the foreground, you know, I think a lot with the um, Occupy Wall Street uh, and then just, you know, much more. I think there has been a growing emphasis on class in the United States. And in Britain, you know, there has always been racism and racial inequality. And I think, you know, as, you know, class uh, attention to class grows in the United States, attention to um, race has also grown, grown in, in Britain as well. But historically, and I think even today, you know, I think, for example, students in my study were in Britain um, almost exclusively kind of saw race through a kind of colorblindness lens, whereas in the United States they were um, much broader in the different ways that, that students thought about race. Um, and then you asked um, the extent. So, so, you know, if we think about um uh, colorblindness in Britain as a way of making sense of race and kind of denying racial inequality in the United States, you know, I think we have this ideology of equal opportunity and that's the way we kind of deny class inequality and um, uh, uh, sort of have this belief system that supports this idea that, um, that we don't have kind of that, that we have social mobility and that, and we have equal opportunity across class lines. Um, but really these exist in both of these societies and it's just a matter of, um, you know, self-concept, concept, conceptions about society. But I also think that, you know, you know, you asked how, what we, the United States can learn from Britain. You know, I think overall, uh, students in the United States and college campuses have learned a lot over the past, say, 30 or 40 years in thinking about race and how to address it on campus. Um, but one of the things, you know, I think one of the small things that I highlight in the book that I think um, uh, we might learn from is the way that British students are able to speak much more freely about race, racial difference, um, speak their mind. Um, there isn't the same level of kind of anxiety over talk about race, um, the way that I found as what I found in the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, I think some, some of the, the students in the United States, both white students and students of color kind of wished that, um, people would, you know, state their views more openly. Um, and so that they could engage in conversation, even if it was someone who they disagreed with. Um, and that happened a lot that those views were much more, um, apparent in Britain if, although there was less kind of discussion or engagement or critique of those views. But, you know, this might be changing the United States today. Um, you know, I think with the, with the recent election, I think there is a lot more kind of um, open discussion of views that some people might uh, view as racist or offensive, um, a lot less, you know, worry that um, of the ramifications of that because it's been kind of supported um, at a national level, those kinds of views. Oh, sweet. Thank you. So uh, diving into the, the research in the book, correct, 
Um, so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you visited Harvard, Brown, Oxford, highly selective, elite, iconic institutions. Um, though I wouldn't be one of these people, some people may have some complaints about the lack of a quote-unquote representative sample. But in the book, you make a very good argument for why you should study these institutions. Could you explore that for our listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that these students are representative of college students in the United States. Most college cool. students in the United States are not living on residential campuses. They're not going to selective colleges, let alone the most elite ones. Um, but I really, um, there, there are two reasons why I decided in the end to um, interview students on elite college campuses. The first one is more about, um, you know, thinking about in the, if we think about where we're going in terms of uh, American society and British society, what are our future leaders thinking about? How are they thinking about race? How are they thinking about equity and fairness um, and opportunity? And I really wanted to get a sense of that. And, you know, these students on these campuses and not just these campuses, but other selective college campuses, all kinds of campuses. But, you know, these students are more likely than those on other campuses Um to be, um, you know, our uh, people working, you know, policy makers or, you know, someone who's in a position to hire other people and um, or, you know, working in the media. And so they, they you know, really will have a, a role in shaping the national discourse. And I think the and the other reason that I that I thought, you know, not just selective universities, but the most selective is, you know, I knew that I was going to ask a lot of questions about affirmative action. Um, and I and I had a hunch that if I went to, you know, um, slightly lower tier, you know, high status universities, there would be a lot of students who were disgruntled, that, white students, I should say, who, um, you know, I could almost predict that who would say, well, if I, you know, if it hadn't been for affirmative action, I would have gotten into Harvard, to the Ivy League. Um, and I just didn't want that. I, I wanted to get at what is the most sympathetic audience um, the, the, the audience that feels the least anxiety over racial equity and the least sense of loss of kind of status um, and the least fear of that state loss of that status. And what is so what is my most most sympathetic audience to promoting racial equity and what are their views and how do they think about these issues? Um, and, you know, meritocracy in general, these are students who got into Harvard. Right. So there's no I didn't get into um, because of that. Mm -hmm. Well, that transitions right into my next question. It's, it's kind of a two-part question. Bear with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you talk a lot about merit in the book, you know, for, like both as it exists as a general social idea and then the fact that the individual respondents who you research have some pretty specific ideas about what merit should be. Mm -hmm. So um, you kind of touched on this already, but how important is the idea of merit when we think about college admissions as a place to describe race and diversity? And furthermore, for those listeners who might not have read the book, what exactly is calibrated merit? So this idea of merit um, is, you know, I really want to, you know, if we think about, um, when we think about merit, we think about some kind of um, skill or um, uh, that a person possesses and right that that is uh, a form of competence right mm -hmm. and if we think about meritocracy is this idea that people are being selected on some fair basis right for something more broadly and you know the irony of the term meritocracy is that it was invented um, by Michael Young in the 1950s in Britain when he was kind of critiquing 
this growing um, idea that we could, through a system of selection, we could, you know, we could have a fair system and get the best of the best and and and, and better society. And that, you know, it was a it was a um, it was a farcical kind of piece that he wrote. And so, um, you know, the irony has been. Good. It has lost its ironic meaning, obviously, in the way that we use meritocracy. We use it as a as a way of saying, you know, a fair system, a system that is the right way of selecting people um, that's just, right? So that's the um, – and, you know, when we think about college admissions in the, in the United States especially, we um, – you know, race is like the issue that always comes up in terms of, like, is it fair or is it not fair to think about race when you are doing admissions? Um, and so, um, so, but I wanted to kind of take a step back. And so, the mm-hmm. the one the, the first one of the first issues um, in thinking about meritocracy that I that I talk about in the book is how do students understand college admissions and what a fair system is. So, in the United States, I talk about two aspects of of, of merit. I talk about um, calibrated merit, which is what you asked me about, which mm-hmm. is that um, which is that. Uh, when they expect that when an admissions officer is looking at an applicant um, applicant's file, that they take into consideration the opportunities that that person has had. So don't just look at how many SAT, how many sorry AP classes did the student take and do well in, but also look at how many AP classes did that student's high school offer? So if the school offered two and that student took both and aced them, well, that student is, um, you know, a stronger candidate than someone who's than someone whose school offered ten and they took three and aced them. Even though, you know, on a, if you're just looking at the individual, the second person has more. So that's a kind of calibrated evaluation of merit that the students expected in the United States as a way of kind of acknowledging inequality in American society and unequal opportunities and saying, we, you know, you can't, all someone can do is take advantage of the opportunities that they have. Um, the other piece in the United States in terms of merit was this idea of the kind of collective merit of the cohort, right? There was this idea that, you know, everyone's got to bring something to the cohort. And through that, we're all, we're going to have this great learning experience, right? So we're going to have, we're going to get, you know, the, the athlete is going to benefit from athletic recruiting because that gives us strong teams and it gives us school spirit. And um, the musician is going to, like, that's going to be what that gets that person in because then we have a great orchestra and we can have, get great music. And then, and um, you know, and then the book I talk about how um, race is a part of that, right? That being a racial and underrepresented minority, being black or Latino or Native American becomes part of that, right? You're bringing your perspective and that enriches the learning experience as well. And so, but in, in contrast, in, in the UK, the way they thought about merit was, was a really kind of, colorblind, class-blind, like you get the high score on the math test, you get to come to Oxford to study math. So um, a kind of absolute sort of understanding of merit, um, devoid of context um, and not related to um, bringing a particular skill or anything like that. Perfect. So um, going into the research interviews you conduct with the students at the schools, um, we use... We see them utilize a variety of frames in this book when they talk about race and campus. First, could you describe for our listeners what is a frame, and you know why do social scientists talk about them so much? Yeah, frames are sort of a way of understanding. Um, you know, we think about like 
the lens through which we see the world, right? Because it sort of acknowledges that there are, you know, there's, we always have a perspective through which we see the world, right? And the way in that frame or that lens that we have shapes the way that we understand what's happening. Um, so, you know, some people who study social movements talk about how frames shift in terms of what's happening in society and how, you know, people who are involved in social movements try to shift public understandings of, you know, for example, segregation um, at, you know, segregation in the past is a way of maintaining social order shifts, you know, the kind of civil rights activists shift that meaning to um, a way of as, 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 a, as a morally abhorrent um, uh, social practice that um, dehumanizes people, right? And through that shift in the social understanding of segregation, um, social change, it, it opens the door to social change, right? Mm -hmm. So, but in this case, I'm talking about race frames and the ways that we understand what race does in society, right? Um, and and the, the role that it plays. And that shapes the way that students think about um, affirmative action, um, their peers on campus, um, race relations, um, etc. Sweet. So in the book, we see the students using a variety of race frames, and some of them kind of overlap. Uh, without, I guess, getting bogged in the details, could you yeah. just briefly describe, you know, what makes the frames different and, you know, what they are, what, what they're good for? Yeah. So, um, so the two most common frames that I saw in the United States were, well, the most common frame across these contexts was the uh, colorblindness frame, mm -hmm. which is that, um, which says that um, race is a social construct, you know, that phrase often gets used, and it really has no social meaning aside from its role in the past, right? So that um, it's, you know, if you ask a student to explain uh, racial inequality, they'll say, well, it's really about class inequality mm -hmm. and that class is tied to race for historical reasons, right? So that there is no um, social meaning um, to race in the contemporary context. Um, and so, you know, therefore, for example, affirmative action should be, if we're thinking about affirmative action as um, related to promoting equity, then it should be related to class, not to race, as a kind of classic example from the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and so the the other big frame in the United States that I heard, not as much in Britain, is what I call the diversity frame, mm -hmm. which is that it's kind of almost the opposite, but related in some ways to colorblindness. The diversity frame says that race is really important. It's cent race and ethnicity are central to our identities. We all have one and it's something to be celebrated. So, you know, um, you know, my family is from India and I eat Indian food and, um, you know, another student's family is from Mexico and they eat this kind of food and we all sort of, you know, share our traditions and celebrations and it's great, right? It's a positive kind of multicultural celebratory kind of frame. So they're very different in the attention that they give to race and ethnicity. Colorblindness says ignore it. It doesn't really have any social meaning. Diversity says it matters a lot. It's, it's, it's central to who we are and um, we have a lot to learn from it. What they share is a lack of attention to racial and ethnic inequality, right? Um, the diversity frame treats 
different social groups as the same in terms of their social position as obviously colorblindness does. So there's a minority of students who had a kind of what I call a power analysis frame where they really saw race through unequal kind of power relationships um, in society. Um, and um, so those are the three main frames that I saw um, mm -hmm. in, these con in, these, in these two contexts. Sweet. And I guess that brings us to the title of the book, The Diversity Bargain. That bargain, which kind of captures, I think, one of the key findings in the book. Could you give the readers the elevator speech version of what is the diversity bargain? Yeah, the diversity bargain is this, that, um, you know, because, so, uh, is that, this is something related to white students, that white mm -hmm. students in the United, and so I'll tell you the U.S. diversity bargain, which is that white students in the United States support in affir affirmative action um, more than I think general, uh, the you know, adults in general tend to in the United States, white adults, but they do so because it benefits themselves, right? And it benefits themselves through this, um, what I called earlier, the collective merit of their cohort, right? Mm -hmm. So that because they 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 hold that diversity frame that we all have different perspectives because we have different ethnic and racial identities and um you know part of college admissions is building this cohort to give me a better educational experience um affirmative action is there so that we can get a quorum of black and latino and native american students on campus for me to benefit so that i can have a better learning environment um now um you know, you might say, well, what's the big deal? They're support supporting it, so that's great. But the problem is that that has these negative repercussions. Mm -hmm. um, so the bargain is that they support, they support affirmative action uh, with some expectations. So um, I outline three expectations in the book. The first expectation is that they expect their peers of color, um, black and Latino peers, all of whom they assume has, have benefited from affirmative action, to integrate into white spaces, right? So that when they see a table of black students in the cafeteria or their roommate jo joining the Latino Students Association, they feel upset because they think, well, you're here because in part to benefit me and enrich my learning experience, so why are you sitting apart, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't say the same thing about, say, a table of white students sitting together. Um, and um, the expectation is that the students enter into white spaces, not that they would go and join, say, you know, the Black Students Association or that table of minority students, for example. Um, and the second one is that it leads to kind of these essentialized understandings of race and this expectation that, you know, uh, again, black and Latino students on campus have to have a certain um, experience that gets labeled the black experience or the Latino experience, right? So if you're coming from a profession, if you're a black or Latino student coming from, say, a professional family or growing up in the suburb, a wealthy suburb, then you're not seen as the kind of bringing that same perspective, different perspective um, mm -hmm. to campus. And then, you know, they feel like, well, why did that, why should that person, you know, benefit from affirmative action? Um, and the last expectation is that affirmative action shouldn't, you know, quote unquote, go too far, right? There is this anxiety of kind of what they would call reverse discrimination, right? That, you know, um, you know, students said things like, if I hadn't gotten into Harvard, then I would have felt that I had experienced racial discrimination. Um, and so there's this idea that, um, you know, if it goes too far, it's gonna um, lead me to miss out on, a, on on opportunities, right? And then it's no longer benefiting me, right? It's 
like, mm-hmm. you know, depriving me of, 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 of privileges I think I, I should have or opportunities. Um, so that's the diversity bargain that they kind of, um, a set of expectations that they have um, in in um, exchange for supportive affirmative action. Cool. Um, is there some kind of contrasting bargain happening in the UK regarding diversity in admissions? Yes. Sorry, I forgot to talk about the British diversity bargain. So the British diversity bargain is this. that um, So let me back up and say that one of the things in the US that this does is that this notion of collective merit is the students are constantly looking around and wondering, well, how did you get in and how did you get in? And, you know, um, oh, you know, this person is a great piano player and that's how they got in. And, you know, there's an assumption that the black and Latino students got in because of their perspective. And, you know, are you really kind of quote unquote good enough or academically strong enough to be here? Um, and in Britain, um, because there was no affirmative action, and in, in recent years, there is, there is grow, I should say, there is growing kind of what they call widening participation schemes in Britain to, to expand access. But, you know, this was really just getting underway when I was um, doing these, these interviews. Um, and these students, you know, didn't know anything about them and didn't, you know, advocate anything like it. Um, but they really, um, you know, they had this sort of like, you get the highest score on the test, you get to come to Oxford, this idea, but, and so they, um, uh, they really, whoever was on campus, they accepted and they believed deserved to be Mm -hmm. there. There was no questioning of their peers. There was like a kind of understanding that everyone here is brilliant and deserves to be here. And that was just like taken as a given. Um, but they, there was that in exchange for really no vision for um, how the university might expand access, how um, they might, um, you know, broaden the, the the student body. So, you know, the, the big statistic that you always hear in Britain is that almost half of students on the Oxford and Cambridge campuses are coming from private schools, where seven, 7% of um, students in Britain go to private schools, right? And so mm-hmm. how do you sort of, and again, you know, there, there are similar, you know, there was just an article in the New York Times that came out today about um, inequality in, in elite U.S. universities, you know, similar kinds of data. So that, but there was no kind of vision for like, how do you expand access? How do you change that? Or even just a, like understanding that that's a problem that Oxford should play a role in some small role in solving um, or, or, you know, addressing. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that, uh, that, you know, that wraps up the majority of my questions about the, the book's uh, theses and such. But one thing I was reading which really popped out to me when comparing the American versus the British context is the role of humor when it comes yeah. to talking about race in the British situations. Um, could you say a little bit more about that? Uh, first, you know, what, what is that role? And then do you see a future for that kind of conversation here in the U.S.? Yeah, and the humor thing was a little disturbing to me that there was this, you know, um, and at first I found it perplexing. Like, there's all this talk of, you know, racial jokes are okay because... Um, it's a joke that anybody, and then we kept, they kept this, this one young man kept saying to me, it's a joke that anyone could be racist. It's a joke that anyone could be racist. And I just thought, well, you have these incidences on campus that are real incidents of like overt, blatant racism. And then you're saying that it's a joke. Um, 
But I think the idea was that, you know, um, it was a way of signaling that they're not racist. And I, But I think the other thing was that there was this kind of, there seems to be this kind of culture of kind of racial banter um, that comes in part from the kind of el very elite um, private schools, as mm -hmm. the students told it, but, you know, then comes to Oxford. Mm -hmm. um, and your know, students would also say things like, well, you know, my black friend participated or my South Asian friend, part they don't use the word South Asian, they use the word Asian, but mm -hmm. they're, you know, they mean South Asian, um, participated, so it can't be racist, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But then, you know, at the same time, I had, um, you know, one or two students of color, I had one white student talking about how either they tried to intervene when they heard jokes like this and they were shut down, um, or they didn't feel like they could say anything because there was no kind of space for them or it was clear that they would be shut down if they tried to kind of intervene or it would they would be seen as like, you know, not being able to take a joke or, you know, ruining the fun or being too serious. Mm -hmm. um, so there was no room for critique, you know, mm -hmm. even though, you know, as the joke as the jokers saw, well, you know, it's joke and look, you're you're participating in it. Um, or they would say, you know, well, there's jokes about about minorities. There's also jokes about blondes and short people and mm -hmm. fat people and whatever. So it's not, you know, it's not racial. But um, I think that it really highlighted the ways that um, there there was a lack of, you know, a basic sort of understanding that we should work hard to. Um, avoid offense to mm -hmm. others. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Is I am out of questions. Is there anything, final thoughts, final conclusions you'd like our listeners to take away? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, um, you know, part of, uh, you know, part of what I, what I try to do in the book is to say that there, you know, I think we have a real opportunity to promote um, on college campuses, especially a residential college campuses, to promote interracial dialogue. I think students are really hungry for it. I mm -hmm. think, you know, the the this this last election, I think with this, I think students are even more kind of interested in engaging, and I think we need it even more, whether it's across racial lines or political lines, and we just have to, um, I think, as you know, if we think about the role that universities can play, really figure out, like, what universities can do, and how do we facilitate this um, dialogue for students, and, you know, to talk across lines of difference, again, whether they're racial or political, um, but it feels kind of very urgent and essential more, now more than ever. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. For sure. Um, this is Neeraj with Office Hours signing off. Have a great day. This week's episode of Office Hours featuring Natasha Waraku was produced by me. Matthew Aguilar Shampoo is a part of the Society pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more written content about the sociology of race and diversity at the societypages.org. 